you have a Bible, navigate over to Psalm 62, verse 5 is where we're going to begin this evening. Invite each of you to follow along so we can all not only hear these beautiful words, but see them with our own eyes right there in black and white, addressed to you and to me from, from our Lord. I was realizing the other day that most of us from a very young age We're trained to keep in mind certain places of refuge that we might need to flee to in a given situation, right? If you were, if you grew up going to school, you had fire drills and every class would have a specific place somewhere on the campus or somewhere on the playground. You'd all line up there and they'd have to count you and do all that kind of stuff. If an earthquake hits, where are we all going to run to? Door frame, I'm sorry, one, two, three, four, five, six, we have like eight door frames in here, so the first eight people are safe, and the rest of you, I'm so sorry. So, but we think, okay, if an earthquake, we're in California, when the big one hits, get to a door frame, and uh, we'll be safe under the door frame. Here's kind of an, a reversed one, during a lightning storm, so we got a bunch of rain, if it started doing a bunch of lightning, you're out in the open, where's the place you don't go? The water, wait, somebody else said something. All right, under the tree, right? So we, we, we have these things that we're sort of trained with. Places to go, places not to go. Don't go under that big oak tree. Sadly, people still make that mistake and ends up making the news from time to time. I realize we even make a game out of finding the best place to take refuge, best place to hide, right? Hide and go seek. My boys were playing it this afternoon before we came here. It's a rainy day, so you've got to be wild inside. And so they were playing hide and go seek. It's always fun to play hide and, hide and seek with kids, right? Because they usually don't realize that they can be seen when their legs are sticking out from behind the curtains or from under the bed or whatever. And uh, it made me think, though, kids, they have the smallness and the flexibility to get into all the best hiding places in your house, right? But they don't know about it. They don't have the know-how. The adults, we have the know-how, but, man... <laughs> We, we know the spots you'd never be found in hide-and-seek. If I was just two feet shorter and 100 pounds lighter, man, I could get in there and no one would ever find me. But that was fun. Our boys at home, they have, they have short patience for hide-and-seek, right? They want the rounds to go quick. They don't like to be hidden for a really long time. And so if you're hiding, what will happen is if, if you're not found after a while, they just start going, whoop, whoop, like wherever they are. They start making this like weird bird call. So that the, 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 the seeker will come and find them. It's fine with me. Now, I also find the, the great fortress refuges of history fascinating. You can look a lot of them up. You know, a lot of you Bible students are familiar with, uh, or especially students of end times, they, they learn about Petra, you know, eventually, either people who like eschatology or people who like Indiana Jones, they look up Petra and they see that, that rock city and it's a really interesting place. But then there's the famous rock of Gibraltar back in the 16th century. Britain enhanced the medieval structures that were built there. They fortified the very top of the rock. Over centuries, defenses were improved there. Caves and passages were carved into the rock for storage, for armaments, troop movements. And then there's the Fort of Chitor, covers 700 acres on top of a 590-foot-tall hill in India. Pretty interesting place. You can see pictures of it online. It was built back in the 7th century. It had seven gateways guarded by a watchtower and iron-spiked doors. 
40% of the fort space was covered with water at one point, enough of a reservoir to hold about 1 billion gallons of water, and with rainfall, it was sufficient to maintain an army of 50,000 soldiers for four years without fear of thirst. A pretty cool one. Now, Psalm 62, if you've been here since last week, you know that this is a song about refuge. It's written by David, dedicated to his friend Jejethin, which is why we're going through it. And it proclaims the absolute security found in the Lord. And as we saw last time, it was written from within that refuge, right? David is writing from a position in that security, in that refuge. He wasn't just theorizing. Uh, he wasn't just uh, writing up a fairy tale or wide, writing up some wish that he, he wanted to be true. Um, yet there he is, you know, writing out these lyrics, living out these lyrics as enemies kept trying to take him down and destroy him. But there he is, harp in hand, secure, satisfied in his God, gives us this wonderful song of triumph and refuge. Now tonight, in the second stanza of the song, we'll see David continue this refuge anthem. He'll do so in two parts. First, he preaches to himself a reminder, and then second, he preaches to us a recommendation. The reminder is the majority of our passage, verses 5 through 7. David writes in verse 5, My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. Verses 5 and 6, if you take a look at the, the whole song, they're very similar to verses 1 and 2, pretty repetitive. There are a few careful changes. The biggest difference here is who the words are aimed at. If you look at the first stanza of the song, where he's sharing some of these same ideas and these same principles about the Lord, uh, he's revealing what he knows to be true about God. It doesn't have a particularized audience. He doesn't direct it specifically at anyone. It's sort of broadcast for whoever comes across the song, right? He's just, he's laying the truth out for anyone who reads it. Now here in verse five, he's going to repeat some of these ideas, but we see him actually direct his message to someone. He directs it inward. He directs it toward himself. And he reminds himself to keep believing the Lord and to keep doing what he's already been doing. He had said at the beginning, what? Truly, my soul does wait silently on the Lord, right? And then we move through the psalm and we're here at verse five and he says, hey, soul, keep doing that. Keep believing, keep doing what you know to be true and what the Lord has called you to do. Spirit-filled Christians, we preach to ourselves. That's an important thing. Uh, we're not one and done. Once I've read the Bible, okay, I'm done. I don't have to preach to myself. I've, I've finished it. It's not that kind of a book. It's a book we want to keep preaching to ourselves day by day. We go to the Word, we see what God has revealed, and then we believe that truth, right? Apply it to our lives, and then we go on reminding ourselves about what God has said and what it means for us, and what it means for our daily living. I mean, we're all called to preach the gospel, right? We're all commissioned by God as disciples to go out and make disciples, but we're also called to preach to ourselves, to continue to make yourself a disciple, and to preach that truth that the Lord has revealed through the scripture to ourselves as well. And so, it's important to preach to ourselves for at least two reasons. Uh, first of all, we're prone to fail. And second of all, we're prone to forget. Uh, 
Christians, you know, we're, we're saved by grace. We're made new creatures by the power of Jesus Christ. He's doing a work of sanctification in us. Uh, he is, you know, bearing fruit of, out of our lives, doing all of this incredible work. But, I mean, we're still imperfect, and we are prone to fail. Uh, we know that from personal experience, but we even know that from the examples in the Scripture. We think of some of the most uh, spiritual men in all the New Testament. They were still prone to fail. We think of like Peter and John, right? Not before the resurrection. Yeah, they were prone to fail then, but they were even prone to fail after the resurrection. Even late into their lives as apostles, leaders of the church, writers of the New Testament, they were still, of course, imperfect, just like we are. And they had moments of failure, some of them that are recorded for us in Scripture. Uh, Paul had to rebuke Peter in front of a bunch of people in the church one time, way late into Peter's life as a Christian and as an apostle. Paul had to, like in a meeting like this, say, hey, Peter, you're in sin, and here's why. One, two, three, four, and had to rebuke him. Uh, John, there's an interesting little situation there. The Apostle John, as he's seen the visions recorded in the Revelation, in the very last chapter of the Bible, when the whole thing is wrapping up, he's seen one of the last visions of of eternity. This angel showing him stuff, and man, he just gets overcome, and he just falls down at the feet of this angel to worship him, and the angel has to say, whoa, see that you don't do that. I don't want to get in trouble for you (laughs) worshiping me. And he says, hey, John, you're making a mistake here. Don't do that. Get back up. I'm a servant just like you. And so he had to be corrected. There is a gentle correction, but John, you know, he was imperfect and he made a mistake in that moment. And so, you know, we are prone as even spirit-filled Christians saved by grace. We're still prone to make mistakes. We're still prone to failure. The Lord knows that. And so that's why he gives us his word to preach to ourselves, one of the big reasons. And so that's why the regular preaching of God's word to ourselves helps us to overcome uh, our propensity to fail, right? What did the psalmist write in Psalm 119? He said, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so that's why we do uh, this preaching to ourselves regularly like we see David doing here. But we also preach to ourselves because we're also prone to forget. Uh, even if we're not in a time of failure, we are prone to forget. I'm a forgetful guy when it comes to certain things. I remember some things well, and I don't remember other things very well. But we're all prone to forget, and it seems especially in the spiritual life. Uh, this was something the disciples struggled a lot with in the Gospels, right? They forgot what Jesus had said. They forgot what Jesus had done, and they would get into these new situations, and they would just forget. And sometimes the Lord would come to them and he says, hey, didn't you remember what I said to you? Didn't you remember what happened before? And they were prone to forget. Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Exodus. Man, the children of Israel, they were prone to forget, right? Out in the wilderness, forgetting the power of God, forgetting the direction of God, forgetting the commandments of God, forgetting the signs that God had showed them day in and day out. And, and yet they, they were prone to forget those things. Uh, in times of strain or tragedy or suffering, we especially t- tend to find ourselves forgetting what we know to be true about the love of God, about the power of God. And especially in those situations, we should take our cue from David who preached about the great refuge found in God. Remember the backdrop and the setting of the psalm. It's talking about how he's constantly, incessantly under attack. And so he's preaching to himself, hey, but here's what I know to be true. Here's what's going on in my personal circumstances. Yep, but here's what I know to be true. I know that my God is my salvation. I know that he is a refuge. I know that I can anchor myself to him and I'm not going to be moved. And so great uh, little preaching that he's giving to himself. He also says there in verse five, my expectation is from him. 
From who? Well, he said it already, from God. And David uses here the name Elohim. In this psalm, he uses that name every time you see the word God. Sometimes in other psalms, he would use Yahweh. And here, though, he's using Elohim every time. One of the stands out about that particular name of God is that it's a plural word, which speaks to us of the Trinity and reminds us that we should expect to receive the ministry of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is accomplishing his will and his purposes for our lives and for the whole world. We should expect that. God the Son being our advocate, our great high priest, our king, our head, our savior. We should expect him to minister in those ways. God the Holy Spirit sent as our helper, the one who fills us with power, who intercedes on our behalf. We can expect him to accomplish that ministry in our lives. And that's just barely scratching the surface of what is revealed about Elohim in the Bible. Now, we can expect all this ministry because there are things God has promised to do. He says, hey, here's what I'm going to do on your behalf and in your life as you walk with me. But in addition to all of that, we learn from the Bible that as Christians, we can expect to have a new identity in Christ. And we can expect power for service and a message to proclaim to the world around us. We can expect the Lord to continue his process of sanctification in us and to give us freedom and giftings and callings and opportunities. We expect his coming kingdom where we will rule and reign with him. And so we have so many things that we should be waiting for with expectation. And we should be an expectant people always on our minds thinking about, here's what the Lord says he's going to do, not just generally, but going to do for me, in me, through me. I expect him to do those things today. And so the the Christian life should be characterized by hopefulness and, and the kind of excited anticipation that David had and that he demonstrated in Psalms like this one. He continues in verse six, he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. Now, here's what I want to point out about this verse. It is a word-for-word copy from verse 2 with one adjustment. David has pulled out the word greatly here in verse 6. In verse 2, what did he say? You can see it for yourself. I shall not be greatly moved. And here, uh, he's even more optimistic than he was before. I shall not be moved at all. Not, not just greatly moved, you know, I'm not going to be moved at all. And remember, this is after he reveals the incessant attacks he's enduring from men within his own administration. A lot of the Bible commentators think, you know, or speculate that he was maybe writing this psalm during the rebellion of Absalom, his son, which tore apart his family and was, you know, obviously incredibly hurtful and just almost destroyed the whole kingdom, right? Either way, whether it was during that period or just another period where his own friends and his own appointees and his own, you know, uh, cabinet there were conspiring against him and he knew it. And yet he's even more optimistic than he was at the beginning. He says, I'm not going to be moved at all. Now that I've thought about who God is and what God does and what my position is in my relationship with God, I'm not even, I'm even less worried than I was in verse 2. That's pretty remarkable. He had looked down from the strong tower there at those unbelievers trying to scale the wall to take his life. And he looked around at the power of his God and David just called down to him. He says, yeah, you can't get me. Nah, 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 nah. You know, Uh, you can't get me. You can't touch me. You can't even jostle me a little bit because I am safe in the arms of my Savior. It's pretty great. 
and he reminds himself that God is his salvation. God is his rock. Elohim will defend. And not only will he not be caused to stumble, we looked at that last time, but he's not going to move at all. And then in verse 7, he continues this line of thinking and expands past what he had said back in verses 1 and 2. Uh, verse 7, in God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Twice in this verse, he explains that this security he's talking about is found in God. The strength and shelter and salvation that we need to live out this life is found by abiding in Jesus Christ. Now, David didn't know the name of his Savior, but we do, right? We're on the other side of things. It's Jesus Christ. And when we abide in his love, we are able to do what could never be done on our own. We will bear fruit, we will endure, we will overcome sin, we will become conduits of the truth and the love of God. That's what the Bible, that's how the Bible describes you as a Christian. I mean, and I think we can, I know I can sometimes read these sort of poems of David and say, that's not realistic. How, how come I don't experience that all the time? And then we are kind of, you know, snapped out of that. We remember, what did Paul say? He says, yeah, none of these things move me right? He effectively said the same thing that David says here because he says, hey, I'm abiding in the Lord. And yeah, all this other stuff is happening in my physical circumstances. I have these enemies. I have these pressures. I have these attacks, all this stuff going on. But you know what? I'm found in Christ and here's my position in Christ and none of these things are going to move me. And so this isn't just true of David. This is what God wants for all of his people. And as we've been looking in this series, in the songs dedicated to Jejuthin, you know, we don't always feel that way. That's what Psalm 39 was all about, right? The last psalm we took a look at where David uh, was facing some of these same troubles and some other ones. And he says, man, Lord, I don't feel that security. And we've been talking through how the Lord led him to that rock. And now he's there on that rock, the one that is higher than he is. And he's able to feel that assurance and that security and feel the peace that passes human understanding. And so uh, we know the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we abide in his love, we're able to do what we could not do on our own. We will bear spiritual fruit. We endure. We overcome sin. And David understood that salvation was not going to be found in any pile of wealth, not in any program. It's found in a person. In God is my salvation. In God is my refuge. He doesn't say in better chariots or in more soldiers or in, you know, the end of political unrest is my salvation. He says, no, in God, in the Lord is my salvation. But notice, we not only escape by the skin of our teeth in this scenario, but it says in God is also our glory. Right? So David's under attack, and depending on your translation, you look back at the last hands and he says, hey, these guys are trying to murder me, not just pull me down, they're trying to murder me. And he says, but you know what? In the Lord, I'm not only going to be saved and rescued from that attack, in God is my glory. The Lord's going to go beyond just saving me. Imagine you're you know, at home later tonight, your house is burning down. You get pulled out of your house with just the clothes on your back. I mean, you'd be thankful to escape with your life, right? You'd be like, man, at least, what do people say when their houses burn down? At least no one got hurt. At least we survived is something that you hear people say in those sorts of tragic situations. 
But what's amazing is that the Lord goes much further as a rescuer. The fireman that pulls you out of your burning house, he's going to save your life. He's going to care for you in that situation. And then it's over. The call's over. He goes home. You go nowhere because you, your house burned down, right? But the Lord as a rescuer goes much, much further. He says, okay, I've saved your life. Now here's what we're going to do. You're going to come into my household, not temporarily, but permanently. And you're going to receive my inheritance. I'm actually going to make you part of the royal family. And I'm going to even go beyond that, make you part of my body on the earth. And by the time I'm done with you, you're going to be absolutely perfect and glorified in heaven for all eternity. Wow, that's the kind of rescuer the Lord is. That's the kind of salvation David's talking about. Salvation where it's not just, you know, not losing our lives, but it's a salvation that includes the glory of God that he shares with us. And so David would have us remember that it is in God alone that this hope is found. We talked about this last week. A major emphasis in this song is the word only, God only, God alone, no other source, no other name, only Jesus. He is our God and there is no one else. And so David has a pretty great little sermon here. He preaches that reminder to his own heart. And now in verse 8, he preaches a recommendation to the rest of us. David's never one to leave everybody else out. When he thinks these great things about the Lord, he so often then turns to the rest of us. He says, hey, and you too, you too, come and join me. And he preaches a recommendation for the rest of us. Because having heard what he said in verses 5 through 7 describing what it's like to be in relationship with the Lord, well, the only rational response from all of us reading this should be, well, how do I get in on that? How do I get up on that that place of refuge and onto that high rock? And David gives us this recommendation in verse 8. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So there are two specific directives here in this line. If we want to enjoy the assurance of God, we should trust in him and pour out our hearts before him. Now, these aren't the only two components to a relationship with Christ, but it's what's on the table for us this evening. Trusting in the Lord is a big topic in the Bible, obviously. A few weeks ago, looking at the second stanza of Psalm 39, we talked specifically about how trusting the Lord is an active expression of faith. And so I don't want to rehash that. But if we want to know more about what trusting God looks like, the Psalms are a great place to start mining. Uh, there's, uh, there are at least 50 references to this idea and to this principle in the Psalter. But generally speaking, we know that to trust someone is to believe what we're told about them and then to place our confidence in them. David describes it as resting on God, to rely on God and to anchor all the weight of our lives onto his firm foundation. In the New Testament, in New Testament terms, it means to walk by faith, to believe that God is doing what he has promised to do and to believe that we are who he says we are that we have received everlasting life and that we can let the mind of Christ dwell in us richly, that we are his workmanship and that he has prepared for us a life to live in his service. We trust God by presenting ourselves as living sacrifices for his service, for his pleasure, and then by making ourselves subordinate to his will and his principles. Even if we, in our human hearts, disagree with them, we say, well, Lord, I trust you. I may have thought we should solve this situation differently, or I may have, I'm, you know, my natural heart has a different opinion, but I trust you. I trust you to have a better understanding of what's going on. I'm going to go your way. I'm going to walk by faith and not by sight. That's trusting God. And then David encourages us to pour out our hearts before the Lord. 
And it speaks to us there of the tender access the Lord grants to us as his people. Now, we can just go before the Lord and and just pour out our hearts before him and share everything that we're thinking, everything that's going on. The Lord's not uh, embarrassed by any of that or afraid of any of that. We can pour out our hearts before the Lord. That's a tender kind of relationship, a tender kind of access. We can bear all our minds and all our souls to this God. In fact, that's what he wants us to do. And when we can't even articulate what's going on in our hearts, what has the Lord done? He says, well, I've given you the Holy Spirit who can translate even your groans so that I can understand, you know, what is going on in your heart. That's our, that's our God. This isn't just some mechanical transactional relationship between a higher power to get into heaven, right? A relationship with God isn't about like, hey, I paid my dues and now I want my ticket in. The Lord says, no, I'm going to bring you into my household, but I want to have a real relationship with you. The kind of relationship where you could share everything that's going on in your heart, everything that's going on in your mind. In fact, I want you to do that. I want you to come and just pour it out, cast your cares upon him before he cares for you, the Bible tells us. And so he gives us real intimacy and real communion with himself and invites us to come into his presence anytime, day or night. He's a refuge for us, a place of shelter. Uh, He's our hope and our safe haven. He's our hiding place, our home. He's a mighty fortress, right? We sing that song, a mighty fortress is our God. Uh, and it's a place of real intimate communion. Now, as we close tonight, I'd like us to notice one more little thing about this stanza. So far in the song, David has talked a lot about the Lord, a little bit about his enemies. He shared some thoughts about himself. But we see that he's also thinking about others, as I mentioned a moment ago. He's thinking about you and me, too. He's thinking about anybody who reads this psalm. He's talking to you in verse 8. And he says there, you people, your heart, God is a refuge for us. And as far as David was concerned, there was plenty of room in the fortress for everyone who would call on the name of the Lord. And David was inviting them in to enjoy it with him. And from our New Testament perspective, we can take this even a step further. We even have more of an understanding than he did. Because we learn from Jesus and the apostles that not only are we permitted into the refuge, and we invite others to join us there as well, but we are to be a part of the refuge ourselves. The Lord is still our refuge, Paul says so in Second Thessalonians 3, 3. But then it's revealed that we are now his body on the earth. We are living stones, we're told, being built up and growing together as a spiritual house. Paul says that through this work, we become members of one another. And we're told in the epistles to bear one another's burdens, right? We're sent out to encourage one another, to help one another, to restore one another when, when people slip up and need that, uh, need that ministry. We are built on the foundation of Christ, and now we, the Bible says he fits us together so that we can do his work and accomplish his ministry. And so you and I are part of the supply chain of God's salvation. We're part of the refuge that he has built here on the earth. We are strengthened by God to stand like the rock of Gibraltar, a place where people can come for help 
for shelter, for comfort. We become like the fort of Chitor, right? As we are sources of Christ, a living water that it can, that man, there's no thirst. That water can't be exhausted when it's flowing through us as we minister to others. And so these verses not only remind us of our access, but also our opportunity to be strengthened, to let God's glory shine in us, to proclaim the refuge found in Christ, and then to be a part of that refuge ourselves. As we actually bring people in and say, hey, I will help you. I will be a minister of comfort and of help and of support and of God's grace. I'm not just going to tell you how to find God. I'm going to help you through ministry as I minister the grace of God to you person to person. And a mighty fortress is our God, his truth to triumph through us, the song says. And so let's enjoy that access and those opportunities as we live out our lives according to the word of God. Mm-hmm.